Do you have the one I just sent? Last Arthur. Okay. That's You got the sermon too, yeah. All 14 slides? Okay. Uh, I've got a, a cold or something like that. So my voice is deeper this morning. I'm not supposed to get sick? No. Mm, okay. Well, that's where it is. Okay. Well, last week, Doug went through and talked about uh, talked about John the Baptist asking a question just before he was going to die. Are you the one? And we had a lot of discussion about that one. I popped back to a, a verse that was the first instance where you had a situation where Jesus drove out a demon. It's in chapter 9. And while they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk, so he was a mute, was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had, who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has been ever seen in Israel. So you have the crowd that says, wow, we've never seen it like that. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. So you have the two, the two responses. In this particular instance, Jesus doesn't respond. But what we're going to open up today about a thousand clicks later. I, I can't read that fast. You can't? Okay. Is where he has another demon-possessed man that's brought to him. So they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. So this particular man can't see or talk. The previous man could not talk. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the king, prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So you have a repeat to some extent. You have a different man. He's both blind and mute, as opposed to just mute. But the responses, let's talk about the responses. So why did they bring a demon-possessed man to Jesus, and who were the they? Who are the they? The they? That was the people that were there. They, they, were, they, were, they were trying to take care of people with those possessions that, that wanted, you know, if you couldn't, if you was mute, he was blind. We have a history of somebody who was blind and mute that was taught to speak, but was never healed, that would be Helen Keller, okay? So she wouldn't, she wouldn't have heard about anything about Christ. This man wouldn't have heard anything about Christ because he couldn't hear. He couldn't see. He couldn't have seen any miracles, so somebody had to take care of him. So we had the two groups. How did the two groups interpret 
Well, who are the two groups? Two groupings? Uh, well, kind of a kind of a us and them. You had the Pharisees was one group, and you had the rest of the people that were there. Kind of falls in that category. They were there. You had the two two different groups, and they were polarized, totally different perspectives on what was going on. So how they interpret things differently. One group said, this is the Christ. It could just be the son of David. The yeah. other group said, could this be Satan? Or could it be from Satan? Yeah. It, you know, and, it, and their interpretations were totally different. Why? Well, the Pharisees felt politically. Yeah. So they were politically motivated to come up with a reason to dispel that it was a miracle. What about the other group? is the son of David. The, who was going to be the Messiah? The one that was the son of David. And what was the son of David going to do? He was going to sit on the throne of David and rule over a kingdom. Yeah. And if he did that, what would that make the Pharisees and Sanhedrin and the Sadducees? All those people that ruled over <laughs> Israel suddenly just lost their job. Yeah. And they look at Jesus and said, no, he can't be. But that goes back hundreds of years to the prophecy that there would be people that had the, could see, but they won't see, could hear, but they won't hear. The ones that were looking for the Messiah, they're going to be able to see. But the other people are going to be blind. And you're going to get into it when you get into chapter 13, because why do you teach in parables? Well, that's going to answer that. Yeah. The, the other part about it is, is but, you know, Paul said they were politically motivated. What you said basically was the same thing. They're, they were politically motivated. It was, it, was their, it was a threat to their power. So they came up with a reason. <clears throat> the other group said, son of David, they were the ones who could hear. Those were the ones that didn't have an agenda, right? They didn't, they didn't have anything at all. Matter of fact, they were the poor, maybe the ones who were being taken advantage of by the Pharisees. And so they were looking at it from, what do I see? I've never seen this before. <coughs> you can kind of see where the Pharisees maybe thought they were getting some traction because they came up with the same reason. This is twice they've come up with this particular reason. This time, Jesus responds. First time, he didn't say anything. This time, he's going to respond. Jesus knew their thoughts, and the there being the Pharisees, and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out, drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So who are the they 
Jesus is aware of their thoughts. Softball. The Pharisees, yeah, the Pharisees, Sadducees. They, they don't really say the Sadducees here, but it seems like the Pharisees certainly are the ones leading the way. So how does he reason the flaw in their logic? It's killing you, Rob, isn't it? Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How can his kingdom stand? Yeah, he says, your logic is flawed because if Satan wants to take over, why is Satan fighting against himself? That doesn't make any sense. Okay? It was used by Lincoln when he gave one of his speeches. He says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. But it was originated here. And it was the logic that Christ had that said, what you're doing doesn't make any sense. What you're saying doesn't make any sense. He puts it right back on. Yeah, they, yeah the, the other part about it is says, you've driven out demons. How'd you do it? But you can kind of see the Pharisees thinking in there is to say, if we tie him to Beelzebub, then we can, it's, it's basically, they're not saying what's wrong about what he says, this is character assassination, which is typical in politics, is you assassinate the character of the person, and therefore you can invalidate everything they say. So they've kind of gone to a new low as far as their reasoning and what they, what, what they do, and they're gonna to go to a, a, a new low even lower. It's a, mark, it's a marketing ploy too. Like they say it, somebody hears it, and they remember that, but they don't know where they heard it or why. It's strong enough that it sticks with them forever. Somebody standing there never follows Christ because of that state. Well, and we have it in our society today. If somebody says a lie, but they say it enough times, what do people start to do? Yeah, there might be some might be some truth to what's being said there. So, so they're promulgating their lie, trying to get some traction. That also points to the first one you got on Every kingdom divides itself against itself will be ruined. You're in a transition of kingdoms. You got the, tra the kingdom of the Old Testament going to the kingdom of the New Testament. If you're willing to squash it, the whole thing will get squashed. It's, so it's, you know, that's really the, the flaw in the Pharisees' thinking is they're killing God's kingdom little by little. Yeah. You going to say something? I, I don't know where you're going, so I don't want to get ahead. Okay. <laughs> it's on the next slide or the next slide. Okay. So why did Jesus do miracles? Would it have been better if just stay away from demon throwing out? Maybe the question is, why was the charismata even introduced? That the ability to speak in tongues, perform miracles, do all these things, was a direct relationship to the coming of the kingdom and at the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit. And that Jesus was the beginning of that, and it showed his power over everything on this earth, that he had dominion over Satan, because he could actually cast out Satan's demons. And so he proved to them that it was by the, you know, the finger of God, or, or God, and he, he showed that uh, he had that power, whereas nobody else 
And there were people that were claiming that they had the yeah. power of Christ <clears throat> during his lifetime. I believe there were 62, according to, I think, Josephus, people claiming to be the Messiah when Jesus lived. Yeah. But yeah. they couldn't do what Jesus did. No, they didn't have, they didn't have the power of God. And it was obvious. And, and, and you touched on it. It showed his authority. He had a, authority and dominion over the creation. And Satan and his followers. I always sort of think about this backwards maybe. Jesus did miracles because he had compassion on people. And, and by doing them though, he showed all this other stuff that people think that that's why he did it. And it's, it's just a little bit different way of thinking about it. But so many times it's that Jesus had compassion on this person and healed them. And, uh, and, but then the, the people watching they said, ooh, maybe he is God. Yeah, and, and when he went to Galilee, remember, they said, oh, do some miracles for us. And he said, uh, no. And he left because he says, I'm not here for a show. The reason he does miracles is because he has compassion. And it just showed his authority. It showed, okay, I didn't come here to heal. Because you remember when he went to Peter's mother-in-law's house. And he healed her. And then he healed a whole bunch of people. Throughout the day. And then at, early in the morning, he left and he went outside the city. And disciples went out to go chase him down and said, well, you got more people to heal. He goes, we're going somewhere else. The reason he did, in my opinion, was because the people were there just strictly to be healed physically, not spiritually. And he was interested in the message, proclaiming the message, salvation has come, the kingdom's coming, and I'm the Messiah. didn't have that ability to perform a miracle, then why do you listen to his words? Um, John tells us that if you believe in me, you'll believe in what I'm doing. And if I'm not doing what the Father sent me to do, you don't have to believe in me. And that, that, that the whole purpose of a miracle was to gain the audience's attention. And then, okay, now here's somebody that must have divine authority. And what he's saying must be true as opposed to just somebody, you know, well, like the, the uh, people in, uh, you know, that had the staffs during uh, Moses, when mm -hmm. they threw it down and all of a sudden, well, see, we can match that. You know, we're just as powerful as the, uh, God is. No, you're not. And Jesus demonstrated, you know, that he, would, he had uh, authority over everything. He had authority over the creation and, like I said, the, the, the demons. It also was to demonstrate the mercy and the compassion of God. If they had, a, if they had a, a vision of God of being this awful being that will punish you if you do something wrong, and I think that was prevalent in the Pharisee society, then he was there at all to dispel that. He's a God of love and compassion and mercy, and not I gotcha. So, Moving on, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possession unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. 
And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So who are the thieves and who's the strong man? What are you talking about? Okay. I'm tying up Satan. He's a strong man. And I'm going to take from him his possessions. Who are his possessions? It's the people he's stolen away from God. He's got these people. He's got the Pharisees, doesn't he? They're greedy. They're selfish. Okay. He's got them. He's got them strong. So what he's saying is, is unless I tie him up, unless I cast out these demons in him like that, I can't pull the people away. So why can't blasphemy against the Spirit not be forgiven? I think I did a double, double negative in that sentence, but what do you think? Couldn't hear you, Brian. The hard thing that you can't, can't follow God or love God if your position is. The cross is the one. I, I, I can kind of hear you. No, that's all I said. You said it was a heart thing. Well, it'd be a heart thing. Well, Christ, Christ can redeem you, but Christ works with the Spirit to redeem you, doesn't he? And if you drive the Spirit out, and I don't know how you do that. I don't know how, how you get to that particular point. But go ahead, Rob. And John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, uh, that the fact that Jesus referred, or John referred to Jesus as the Word all the way through the Gospel of John, and that if you reject the Word, which came from God, you have no salvation, that you have to abide in the Word, and that's where the life is, all the, all the things that pertain to eternal blessings come through the Word, and if you reject that, well, you, you've rejected everything. And I think that he's talking about that if you, that there's the Spirit that's given us the Word, and if you reject the Word, what hope is there? Okay, there's, there's a take on it that makes some sense. To me, if you, if you close out the Spirit, and you say you deny you deny the spirit, then the spirit will basically leave you. To me, this is, this is how I've constructed it in my mind. Salvation comes because of Christ. The way I see it, you talk against God, 
Well, that's, again, Christ says, and he's God, isn't he? Christ is all God. The Spirit is all God. But Christ has made a distinction here. He says, if you do something against me, I'll forgive you. But if you do something against him, he won't. So he's got a warning here that's a pretty strong warning. Is if you deny the spirit. It's like, you know, and, and I've had this discussion with, with brothers here before. Um, I think we had a discussion also about it with, with the same brother. Is people who say, well, yeah, but the spirit doesn't come in you. Well, you're denying the spirit. And there's some people who say, you don't, you don't have the spirit in you when you get baptized. Okay. We do, because it's clearly stated. But I had a discussion with one of the brothers here that had another group that was more legalistic that said, well, you really don't. And I said, that, with what's said here, is risky. It's risky, because you're denying the spirit. How might people blast me against the spirit today? You say, I'm going to sin, I'm going to do it, and there's not gonna, not, nothing going to... Can you drive the spirit out of, your, out of your being? I think you can. I think that's at the point where you become lost, because what does the spirit do for you? He's a helper. What else does he do? Who can separate you from the love of God? You can you can. The only person who can is you. Even though it's an Old Testament thing, it's still consistent with God. Saul, when God gave the king's power, he gave him the spirit. Saul knew David. Saul rejected Jesus, rejected God, and therefore he removed his spirit. And I think that's a very strong example of how we see it progressing within Saul's life, how he did it. In the long run, he had rejected God, the Spirit. Who brings, who brings our Spirit back to life? Father, the Son, or the Spirit? That's what I said, God. Which one? Which part of God? The Spirit dwells in us. Who raised Christ up out of the pit? Or out of where he was. The Spirit. Who raises us up out of death? Spirit. Who renews our spirit? Spirit. Okay, so if the Spirit's gone, you're, you no longer have your spirit being renewed. So he goes on to talk more about it. I don't think I'm going to get to 13 today. Make a treat. Yeah. Go ahead, Rita. Question. If someone has been a Christian and left the church and just kind of living their own life the way they want to live, and then they come back to the church, has their spirit already gone so they can't get it back and they're not forgiven? Or? I'm going to give you my best answer. I don't know. 
I honestly don't know. I'm going to try to go a little beyond that. The prodigal son, for example. Mm -hmm. that I think that no matter how far you go away from God, he's still there. You've got to come back. And that there is a road back to God. It's a struggle, but one can turn his life around and repent because there's no end to the love of God in, in looking at, I mean, he'll, he'll go to, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's how much he loves the world. But we sometimes look at it, well, he loves certain people, but he cert certainly doesn't like these other people to hear. And so we kind of prejudge a person and say, well, that person obviously, God doesn't love as much as he loves me. And he loves the repentance, he loves <coughs> the circumcised heart, he loves all those things. And I think a person can come back. Uh, and the only one that can't come back is the one that doesn't want to come back. And I think you can't, you can you can drift, you know, into the to the pig pen and still come out of it, you know. And uh, I think that, you know, in Hebrews, he's not talking about people that had uh, uh, fallen away from being a Christian. He was talking about people that wanted to go back and live under the law. And if you want to go back and live under that law, there's no hope for you because there was no salvation in it. No, no, you so couldn't be perfect. So. Jesus is the propitiation of sin. He is the sacrifice. Yeah. And every time you look at the temple, it would be like if we're standing outside looking at the temple. There was a, a number, a clock up there that said on the Day of Atonement, now you only have 364 days and so many hours to come back and do this all over again. That you couldn't get those sins forgiven forever under the old law. You had to come back every year and make atonement, and you don't have to do that. Jesus has made that propitiation for us, and we just have to rectify our life and come back. And we need to, you know, seek those people that are lost, like Jesus. Yeah, so. Well, it's it, you know, it's, it, to, to kind of summarize what, what I'm saying is, it's a matter of the heart, and if the heart comes back. Is the spirit still there? Would have to be. But it's kind of the it's kind of the question that, well, will that person be saved? I don't know. I don't decide who God gives his grace to. He decides who he gives his grace to. We can't judge each other from that particular perspective either. It's it's that's kind of the same kind of a question that I leave it up to God. Just like when you can't preach them in or out of heaven. You don't know what their secret thoughts are. No. No. Uh, you don't know what their life is. You can assume what you've seen to be good, but there might be things that you can't see, but God can see them. Yeah. And so you talk to the living, not the dead, because they're the ones that need that uh, comforting uh, of, of one that passes. Uh, there's a secondary rabbit hole I wanted to go down when you talk about the unjust. The Mormon church, for example, their concept of the kingdom is totally different than our concept of the kingdom. They had such a terrible belief that in heaven God was married to many women 
And the ones that lived a good life in heaven came back as white people, and the ones that lived a bad life came back as black people. They actually believed that the curse of, or the curse of Cain was a black skin. Yeah, I've heard that. They have taught that, and they were some of the worst, but that was a common thought. And what was talked about last Sunday, that if you believe that you have a, a group of people that are, are plagued with a curse that they have nothing to do with, it leads to all kinds of, of problems. Of course, the, the, they, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints don't believe it now as much as they did, but they thought if you had one cross, uh, and they said this, Negro blood in your, you should be put to death. And they actually taught that. I, I had at one time a whole bunch of sermons that were written by Brigham Young, and he taught that uh, uh, African-American people were uncouth, uh, seemingly deprived of all natural uh, abilities to do good, and uh, they, I mean, it, it was terrible. But you look at how fast they're growing today, it's amazing, but here this was all based in the wickedness of, of, of uh, prejudice, and you, you know, he addressed it last summer, talking about how the, we've come so far, but we haven't come far enough. That hatred uh, and that prejudice remains. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's human. There, there's, there are those who are, you know, it's an interesting comparison because if you look at those who were control, in control of the Jews at that particular time, they flamed and fermented hate between the Gentiles and the Jews. Well, you've got groups right now that flame hate and prejudice between the races, between uh, men and women. Pick it. If there's an opportunity to divide based on a difference, there are people who are doing that for power. There always have been, there always will be. And that's, and that's what uh, William alluded to when he talked last Sunday, was he talked about those who ferment hate for power, for personal gain, for personal control. And that's what the Pharisees are doing here. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I think that's something, though, still the lesson is, um, so often today people become members of organizations and religions, and they do it for the good they see them do, but they do not understand what they really believe and teach. That's true. And I, I think that that is a weakness with the American people, especially. We, we take everything at surface and we don't really know what we joined or what we believe. And there's so many groups, shriners, and there's so many groups that do good things. You see, but you really knew you see the surface. Yeah, and a lot of people will live their whole life as that and never even know that. And that's very, that, that's very uh, dangerous. Well, it, it, it kind of, I keep bringing it back, but you have. Jesus, who referred to the Pharisees, who everybody review, viewed from society to say, they're the most holy people there are. Well, Christ described them as whited sepulchers. In other words, okay, you look good on the outside, but you're rotten and decaying on the inside because the people couldn't see beyond the surface of what was going on with the Pharisees. They looked at him to say, wow, he sits there and he has flackerty, so he has the word of God always before him. 
He has long robes. He prays. Uh, look at him praying over there and everything else. Like, and, it's, and, and when he drops his money in, he's got all his coins. And if, it was, if he was giving $50 today, it would be 50, 50 silver dollars so he could drop each one into the bucket so everybody hear all these money going in. But when you looked at it under the surface, they were rotten. They were selfish, greedy. And so that's kind of where we're, what we're talking about is you have to be careful about what people are actually believing and teaching. And that's why we try our best to say, if it's in the Bible, we'll teach it. If it's not in the Bible, we ought to keep our mouth shut or state it as our opinion. But it's clearly our opinion. It's not the Word of God. So let, let's move on. I think you did better last week. <laughs> make, a good, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you, who are evil, say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored in him. An evil man brings evil out of the things stored, evil stored in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So he gets pretty harsh with him, but he's, 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 it's a warning, you know, about the Spirit, and it's a warning about them and what they've been saying. So, so what's Jesus compared the Pharisees to? Huh? The mad fruit. Mad fruit. Mad fruit. Bad fruit. The bad fruit, the bad tree. Everything they say is evil. Who's evil? The devil. Satan. Okay, so that's what he's really doing. He's comparing them to, you're of Satan. You're not of God. The men who are supposed to be leading to people of God are not of God. Does a good tree always bear good fruit and a bad tree always bear bad fruit? Are we trees? Do we bear good fruit and bad fruit? Or do we always bear good fruit? Or do we always bear bad fruit? Yes. <laughs> at times. We're, we're at times we're one, at times we're the other. Okay. It's, it's dangerous to carry a metaphor too far. But he's saying, you're bad trees to the Pharisees. I'll try to keep this short, but in Deuteronomy... I don't hold you to that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have to repent anyway. Uh, in Deuteronomy, especially chapter 32, the Song of Moses talks about the whole history of Israel. And that passage, or that chapter, is quoted in the New Testament, referring back to the Jews at that time, that all the plagues that were prophesied by Moses that were going to befall Israel because they did not listen to God's word. Uh, 
You know, he told him in chapter 6, you know, you write this down when you get up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, you have my word on your your mind all the time. Uh, uh, I forget if it's verse 14, but he said, if you don't, I'll wipe you off the face of the earth. That's strong language. It's strong language. And you go through the prophets, they refer back to, okay, here's the curses that is going to befall you. You're going to, you know, like the plagues in, in uh, uh, Joel, uh, the locusts. That was all prophesied. Now, you're going to come down to, uh, like in Matthew 23, he's going to say all that innocent blood <coughs> of Abel, all the way forward, has come upon you for your wickedness. And he's talking to these same... He's talking to the Pharisees. Pharisees. Yeah. So how is it our words will put or condemn us? Is it really the words? The words are part of our fruit. So good or bad, they will quit us. Or condemn us. 35, it says, a good man brings out the things out of the good stored in him. An evil man brings the evil things that are evil stored up in him. It reflects your heart. It reflects where your affinity is. And if it's evil, then you're, you know, it shows your heart is evil. And the words reflect what's inside. So that's how the words either acquit or condemn us, is because it reveals what's inside. And he's being very pointed to the Pharisees to say, what you're revealing is just how evil you are. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I think there's a point made in the Bible where it talks about it's not what you put in, what you there eat. Is, when, when they say he didn't wash the way he was supposed to wash. And, and, and I think that that illustrates this point that it's not what you've had for breakfast or dinner, but that's not where the evil comes from. It comes from within. It comes out of your mouth. And there's where your, your uh, sin lies. It's, the, it's, a, uh, it's not about eating and drinking. Uh, it's it's your, your inner man. Who wrote in the New Testament extensively about what you say and being careful about what you say and how destructive it could be? James. James. Has a whole chapter on it about the tongue. And it's like the rudder on a ship. Ship's huge, rudder's pretty small. But it steers everything. In other words, it reveals where you're going. And so James talked about it quite a bit, but here he's, he's talking about it here first before James got to it. Okay, this is chapter 13, which is where I said I was gonna get to. 13 is a chapter about kingdoms, parables about kingdoms all the way through. And I think Doug is going to talk mostly about this next week because I'm going to barely get into it. I'm going to get into the one we've all seen before and we've been through this parable a hundred times, a thousand times maybe. So let's start with this one, see how we get, how far we get, but you're going to have to probably repeat and start back at the first part of it. 
That day, Jesus, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. So this is new. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it. Well, all the people stood on the shore. When he told them, them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed, and he, was, and he was scattering the seed. Some fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came, the plants scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell upon thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other feed, seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop. A hundred, sixty, or thirty, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let him hear. So we've all heard this one before. What do we call this? The parable of the sower. Huh? Lying farmer. <laughs> He's not a good shot with his seeds. So how many situations of spreading seed did Jesus use in his parable? It's a number. It's under five. Huh? Three. Do I hear any other number? It's four. If the first one threw the seed out, the birds ate it. Second one threw the seed out, came up real fast, got scorched. Third one threw it in the thorns, got choked out. Fourth one, good seed. So we had four situations. What's the seed? The word. Okay. It's the good news, isn't it? I'm going to talk about that tonight. My segue into my sermon tonight. Yeah, Rob. It's, it's amazing that all the way through the Bible, it, there's repeating things going on. Isaiah repeats, repeats, repeats about idolatry and stuff. Jesus, just go back to the last chapter. What was he talking to the Pharisees about? It's the exact thing. Mm -hmm. You're going to, those that have ears, hear. That's right. And those that don't, won't. Won't. So it's, it's just a, a, another way he's, you know, sometimes we think of chronological, that this one is different than this one and this one's, no, it's coming at it from different angles. He's talking about the same thing, but he's going to say, well, there's this illustration, there's this illustration, and you do that when you're telling stories to people. Yeah. Sometimes you, you know, well, you didn't quite get it, I'll try this one and see if this works. It's teaching. Yeah. It's teaching Okay, so I'm going to stop there because I know you're going to pick up with this one next week. And I have another 15 slides, so you've got to start too. 